Boston, Massachusetts, 1942. America has been involved in World War II for almost a year, and people are starting to feel the effects. Wanting to relieve some of the stress of war, couples went to a popular nightclub to try and enjoy their Saturday evening. However, at around 10.15 p.m., that evening of fun would turn into a tragedy. Decorations meant to give the club a tropical feel caught fire which quickly spread throughout the building, killing 492 people. This disaster would change the rules about door hardware and emergency egress forever. I'm Jeff Moss. I'm Tyler J. Thomas. And I'm Tim Coleman. Together, we will explore and discuss these events from the perspective of over 30 years of combined locksmith and door hardware experience. This is the Three Tumblers. Now, the Coconut Grove Nightclub Fire, Part 1, Wartime Paradise. The United States experienced difficult times during the first several decades of the 20th century. Near the end of World War I in 1919, Congress passed the 18th Amendment banning alcohol throughout the country. This led to a large number of criminal enterprises who made, transported, and sold alcohol illegally. Speakeasies became common, especially in larger cities, so named because you were supposed to speak quietly about them so that you wouldn't tip off law enforcement. They were known as a place to go when you needed a drink. In Boston's Bay Village neighborhood, the Coconut Grove opened its doors in 1927, 118 years after the neighborhood's famous resident, Edgar Allan Poe, was born just down the street. The Grove, as it came to be known, was originally opened as a partnership between Mickey Alpert and Jacques Renard, both of whom had mafia connections that provided much of the original financing for the business. While bootlegging liquor was a good business during the Prohibition era, even the Grove at 17 Piedmont Street couldn't escape the effects of the Great Depression. In 1931, the Russian immigrant turned gangland boss, Charles King Solomon, became the owner of the Grove. His part would be short-lived, however. Two years later, he was shot to death by two rival gang members in a men's room at another nightclub. Ownership of the Grove passed to Solomon's lawyer, Barnett Barney Wolanski. Following Solomon's murder, the club had started losing money and business, leaving it struggling. On December 5, 1933, the 72nd Congress of the United States ratified the 21st Amendment, legalizing alcoholic beverages again. Barney saw this as a good thing and wanted to make the club more mainstream for the time but this was still just window dressing on a mob lounge. Wolanski bragged about his mob connections and even being friends with the mayor of Boston, Maurice Tobin. It was these connections that allowed him to get away with his tight ship approach to the club. For starters, Barney hired teenagers as busboys, vagrants as bouncers, and he started locking and hiding exit doors so customers wouldn't be able to leave without paying. In spite of having strong ties to the mob and a rough staff, the club had bounced back and was once again a popular hangout in town. 
patrons had gathered there when Hitler invaded Poland in 1939 and when the Axis Imperial Japanese Navy carried out the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941, forcing America into the war. I, I think all cities had places like this. There's numbers of them that were in Cleveland at one time. Uh, if you look up a place called the Theatrical, it was very storied past, a very interesting cast of characters that went there, worked there, owned it, were silent partners, whatever. This was very common back then, I'm sure. Prohibition being over and everybody was excited. You know, you've seen pictures, I think, even of you know, trucks locked up, master padlocks supplied thousands of padlocks to the ATF or whatever it was back in the day. This is actually very Americana because, as Jeff said, this was very commonplace at the time. And lo and behold, there have been rumors that another Boston native, Joseph Kennedy, John Kennedy's dad, made a lot of money early on in life bootlegging around these parts. It's at least what Frank Costello said. And NASCAR, the roots of NASCAR are in bootlegging and running illegal hooch, as they called it, who had the fastest car, who could get there. That's how they started racing. I know we have a lot of listeners from outside of the United States, so let me paint the picture fully. This is, this is pretty common. There's a lot of people that made a lot of money here at this time, and it wasn't unique to this club. It wasn't unique to Boston. It was all across the country. Imagine not having any alcohol anywhere in the country. It's pretty hard right now for a lot of us. Also, we had the end of World War I, which you know killed thousands of Americans. Uh, we also had the Great Depression, which did absolutely no good for anybody in the country. And even the mobsters were affected by the Great Depression, not bringing in money. Uh, finally, towards the end of the Great Depression was when uh, events started happening in Europe and business actually started turning around uh, either in anticipation or preparation for being drawn into the war, uh, having started a few years before the attack on Pearl Harbor. Yeah, I, I, I hate to turn this into a, a side tangent on history, but I think everybody at the time realized that eventually the United States was going to be involved in this war. The building at Piedmont and Broadway Streets that the Coconut Grove nightclub occupied was originally a warehouse structure. Over the years, owners eventually acquired all of the structure, other parts having been used for other businesses. When patrons went to the Grove, they walked from the parking area around to the club's only entrance from Piedmont Street. There, they went in through a revolving door, the only door, into the foyer. There were restrooms, a coat check, telephone room, and powder room. The office was also in this area. The caricature bar was to the right of the entrance, and from there you could walk out to the dining area and dance floor. The newly built Broadway Cocktail Lounge occupied the building's east corner. Above the Cocktail Lounge was an area with a small kitchen, dressing rooms with stairs for accessing the stage, storage and mechanical rooms, and a small office. The main dining area and dance floor were located centrally in the building, with the stage on the east side and a small terrace on the west. An attractive feature keeping with the South Seas theme was a rollaway roof that was open during warm weather and customers could dance under the stars while the band played. The tropical paradise theme carried throughout the grove. Leatherette, 
rattan, and bamboo coverings lined the walls, and dark blue satin canopies were along the ceilings. Support columns were decorated like palm trees, and coconut-shaped fixtures provided lighting. Behind the office in the main foyer was the staircase to go down to the Melody Lounge. A roughly 1,250 square foot space, it was nestled in the basement directly under the main foyer on the southwest corner of the building. A dimly lit, quiet section of the club, it carried the tropical theme found throughout. The artificial palm trees had electric lighting, and they were the only source of light in the room. So I know that sounded like a lot, but the best way to understand this club's layout, believe it or not, is through Tetris. You know that Tetris piece that's shaped like a Z that everybody hates? That's basically how this club's laid out. So if you're viewing the club from above, it resembled that Tetris piece very closely. If you can imagine that piece in your mind right now, the lobbies on the bottom left part of it, the dance floor and the bar is the middle portion of the piece, and the top right's that cocktail lounge. Now imagine that piece sitting at Broadway in Piedmont. Broadway would be on your right side, Piedmont would be at the bottom. So that's basically the layout of this club. So as we're going through the Coconut Grove Club, you just have to imagine this little, this main dance area, the main bar, it all has very Art Deco type uh, trim and design, the styling from it. Uh, but it's starting to show its age. You know, Art Deco came in to fashion late 20s, early 30s. Now we're in the early 40s. Not to mention this place has been occupied and, and patroned by mobsters for close to 20 years at this point. And so it's all kind of worn out. You got smoke-filled rooms. Uh, little quiet tables where you can imagine mobsters doing deals with businessmen, uh, some big guys in suits standing around by the corners, just kind of a kind of a dank place in some corners, but very very stylish out in the main area where your casual customers would come in and enjoy the night. And we also too have to remember that. Smoking was still very fashionable, and you could smoke anywhere in America at that time. Nowadays, you can't, obviously. There's a very few places you can. I mean, I'm seeing less and less hotels that say, do you want a smoking or non-smoking room? It's all non-smoking now, but even back then, it was very fashionable and acceptable. Uh, every place you could smoke in. And I, I've been to a few bars that still allow smoking, and it, it's, it's terrible. But back then, everybody was smoking. So as Tim said, it was filled with smoke. The you could you could see it, you could smell it. It just I don't know, it didn't seem like a, a good place I'd want to be. But that was that was the time. Back in my clubbing days, uh, here in this area, smoking indoors was still allowed. And I remember being in the club and and you know, you try not to get hit by the end of somebody's cigarette. You'd come out smelling like an ashtray. Uh, the next morning and and uh, but it was all part of the atmosphere I mean they saved a ton of money on fog machines for the stage shows that's for sure different cities have different histories and what I mean by that is that Atlanta and this kind of sounds morose but we had the luxury we got burned down so we could restart a lot of these cities that predate you know 1865 back to the 1700s like Boston 
they were continuously being developed, reconfigured, repurposed, whatnot. So this bizarre layout, especially as I describe it as a Tetris piece, I mean, this is still pretty commonplace in places like Boston, New York, where um, you don't get a clean slate. You have to use what you've got. So it, it leads to these funky configurations. I think this building was... It, it kind of was piecemealed. They added to it after the fact. They bought one portion of it, a warehouse nearby, which I guess became the Melody Lounge, and the lobby at one point was acquired after the fact. So you're kind of like piecing it together as you go along, and you get these weird, funky configurations. That's why apartments in Manhattan, New York, Boston, all that, don't look like they do in Charlotte or Atlanta, where we've had the luxury of having wide swaths of land that we can build upon, repurpose, start from scratch, basically. The kitchen, refrigerators, and storage areas were also in the basement. Access to the kitchen from the lounge was only possible through a door that was made from the same wood paneling as the lounge's walls. It was designed to be known only by staff members most likely as an aesthetic element, but possibly also to keep customers from wandering or trying to steal food. To leave the Melody Lounge and go back up to the main dance floor, customers walked up the stairs, turned right, and turned right again into the main foyer. At the top of the stairs to the left, there was an emergency exit door that led directly outside to the sidewalk. With Barney Wolanski's tight ship approach to running the club, this door was kept locked from the inside to keep people from leaving without paying their bills. Between the main dining room and cocktail lounge, there were a total of four exit doors that led to the sidewalk on the north side of the building. A fifth exit, a pair of doors known as the Broadway entrance, were behind an in-swinging door inside the cocktail lounge on the far northeast corner of the building near the corner of Broadway and Shawmut. This door essentially created a vestibule between the exterior and the cocktail lounge. On the south side of the building, directly behind the caricature bar, were four large windows, all covered with blackout curtains. With Wolanski trying to prevent people from getting in without paying the cover charge, or getting out without paying their tab, all of the exterior doors were kept locked at all times with the exception of the front revolving door and the VIP entrance of the Broadway Cocktail Lounge. At one point, Wolanski had an emergency exit sealed up and bricked off to eliminate one more point that people could potentially sneak in and out of. That's pretty crazy, having a exit door blocked off completely. I mean, thats I don't think that would fly today, but it sounds like back then everything was pretty much pay-to-play so they could get away with whatever. So going back to the Tetris analysis or comparison, the Melody Lounge is at the bottom left of that same piece, directly under the lobby. The kitchen and some of the auxiliary rooms for like heating pumps and compressors are in the middle, under the dance floor and the bar. And the top right uh, is various storage rooms under the cocktail lounge. So the basement basically mirrors the first floor. Yeah, this place was built like a maze. I mean, just to get through, you had to know kind of the little passageways uh, with the 
uh, Broadway cocktail lounge being newly constructed. It had to be sort of uh, tacked on. It wasn't really tacked on, but the uh, access points to it were not flowing with the main dance floor area. And then to get down to the Melody Lounge, of course, again, that's in the basement along with the kitchen and storage. Now, there was a staircase, I believe, coming up from the kitchen area to kind of go backstage in that area between the stage and uh, the Broadway Lounge. But that wasn't accessible by anybody other than staff um, because obviously you don't want kitchen staff and servers walking up and down uh, your stairway that all your customers are going up and down, probably drunk and bumping into people and spilling stuff everywhere. Also, Wolanski, yeah, he's just this kind of money-grabbing thug. I mean, he literally is a, a, a mobster thug when you come down and think about it, uh, but he's wanting to squeeze every single penny out of everybody who comes through there, probably with the exception of his buddies. And you can tell right there, he didn't care if he had exits blocked up. Uh, he didn't care if he had underage staff members. He didn't care about anything. He cared about making money off of the place. That just kind of goes to show you his character. Well, you know, in fairness, how often do you think a fire is going to happen? Or you, you write it off like the likelihoods, you know, this isn't going to happen. Uh, so I can afford to be a little bit more strong-armed or negligent. I mean, it doesn't make anything right, doesn't make it better, doesn't excuse anything, but I, I think he would be sort of in the, you know, as you said, a thug, but he, he's trying to make money, he's trying to protect his money, but at the same time, he's kind of like, you know, what, what are the likelihoods of it happening? Again, not ex not excusing it, not, not casting blame away for him, it was stupid, but... I'd have to imagine that he was more motivated with protecting his business, his money, uh, as opposed to thinking about the likelihood or possibility of a fire. And Tim, going back to what you were saying as far as the maze, the first floor was you know, relatively easy to navigate, wide open spaces. But like you said, once you got beyond the lounge in the basement, as you're working back towards the kitchen, the storage rooms, those auxiliary rooms I was talking about, it is a maze. And there's probably, I don't know the total square footage of the basement, but there's probably 20 doors and probably less than 5,000 square feet. And as you walk beyond the kitchen through that hallway, which does have exits, uh, that stairwell you mentioned, for example, it's just a litany of doors. So who's to say that the door on your left or the next door or the next door or any of the other 20 doors you encounter is going to take you somewhere beyond, you know, a storage room or a heating pump room or a compressor room. So if you were there, the doors obviously aren't marked, but there's tons of them to go to. So which is the one that you go to? How do you get out? So it's a maze in, in more ways than one. Yeah. Imagine being drunk, trying to find the bathroom in that place. Yeah, imagine being drunk anywhere and a life safety event happens. Now that now that you put it like that, yeah, that does make sense. Because I've been drunk. You've been drunk at, at these places before. Uh, delayed reactions, obviously not in the best frame of mind. Yeah, I can't even imagine that. This is like a carnival fun house that you pay to go into and you can get food and get drunk and, you know, dance and have a good time. But 
it's literally like a carnival funhouse. You don't know which door to go out of, and you're kind of lucky to stumble out and fall through that revolving door at the front at the end of the night. I mean, as we've, or at least as I've learned, not necessarily through this podcast, but just learning about these things over the past 20 years, uh, as far as being a locksmith, learning about life safety events, I don't, I don't want to go to these bars. I don't want to go to these clubs anymore. Just bad news all around if something were to happen. I know life safety laws are a lot better today. You've got fire marshals, AHJs checking on everything. But I don't want to be in one of these situations where I'm inebriated, my decision-making, my coordination is already impaired. It's just a, a recipe for disaster. wall coverings and decorations had supposedly been tested for resistance to ordinary ignition from sources like cigarettes and matches. Ammonium sulfate was used to treat cloth and other surfaces in attempt to further reduce the chances of fire. However, this type of flame retardant needs to be reapplied at certain intervals to maintain its effectiveness. Due to the war effort, many commercial materials and supplies were limited or outright restricted for non-military use. This included the refrigerant Freon. The Grove normally had between 600 to over a thousand customers at any given time. Despite the 30 degree temperature outside on November 28th, the conditions inside the club would become uncomfortable quickly with the large number of patrons. So since Freon wasn't available to service the air conditioning system, Methyl chloride was used as a substitute. A sweet-smelling, flammable gas, it was once widely used as a refrigerant, but fell out of commercial use due to health and safety concerns. They make it smell nice so people don't know that they're going to burn to death. That's For all intents and purposes, Freon's not flammable. And in fact, there are types of fire extinguishers that use similar hydrochlorofluorocarbons. Uh, HCFCs is what they call them to put out fires. So uh, Freon's pretty safe, but obviously we've got a war going on. Methyl chloride, on the other hand, is extremely flammable. And the other name for methyl chloride is chloromethane. So does that clue you in as far as flammability? You know, I guess it works, or I guess this was an alternative. God, this is a bad idea. Well, it's just a few years earlier that Germany, being under certain embargoes, uh, as a result of the treaty from the end of World War I, they were limited to uh, not receive any helium. So, without having helium to fill up this big airship called the Hindenburg, they used hydrogen. And we all know what happened to the Hindenburg. So the war effort really, on both sides, can take its toll with life safety. They used what they had that was available... Uh, you know, and suitable alternatives were still a few years away. They were still being developed at this time because the country had only been at war for just under, literally just a few days short of a year. All the research that you hear from the DuPont company and other uh, industry leaders in the country of the time, uh, it still not came out yet. We still don't have nylon yet. We still don't have synthetic rubber yet. Uh, so we don't have a suitable, non-flammable alternative to Freon. 
And I don't know much about refrigeration, but I'm pretty sure you don't want something flammable in the air. Yeah, and one other thing I want to talk about here with the ammonium sulfate. It has a lot of different uses in everyday life, but as a flame retardant, when you use it, apply it, maintain it correctly, it's actually pretty good. It's basically trying to increase the combustion temperature of whatever it's applied to, which makes it harder for something to catch on fire. As far as fighting fires from airplanes out west when they're dropping water and chemicals and all of that, they used to use ammonium sulfate. And it's great for that because it obviously increases the combustion temperature, but it's also non-toxic. So it doesn't mess up the animals or the plants or anything like that after it's been dropped. So obviously here, being applied, it's not like you're going to get you know, a carcinogen or anything like that, just being in proximity to it, especially if you work there. They use ammonium sulfate believe it or not, in things like vaccines and food preservatives. So it's it's a safe thing here. But you, you got to maintain it. You got to keep reapplying it because it does degrade. It does go away. It's effectiveness, at least. Yeah, I mean, that, that's just crazy. I, I had not I had heard a little bit about this fire, but not to that degree with what they were using for the refrigerant. I mean, they're kind of lucky that it, the place didn't blow up earlier. Well, the, the air conditioner, I mean, like we said, you cram that many people inside of a structure even today you want to keep it cool because you have all the body heat uh, coming off of everybody and it's going to get real uncomfortable real fast if you don't have some sort of cooling system in place to regulate that air temperature so they used what they had available On November 28, 1942, the College of the Holy Cross football team beat Boston College. The planned celebration party at the Grove was canceled for the evening. Barney Wolanski was laid up in a private room at Massachusetts General, recovering from a heart attack. Still, over a thousand people packed into the South Seas Paradise. Visiting celebrities such as Buck Jones, were announced by the Mater D as they walked into the main dance and dining area. Arthur Blake, an impersonations actor who covered the likes of Betty Davis, Eleanor Roosevelt, and Katherine Hepburn, was headlining the night's performance. 25-year-old singer, songwriter, and pianist Goody Goodell was on stage in the Melody Lounge, downstairs starting a jazzy number of the time. A young man and his date were in a corner making out, possibly one last time before he was shipped off to war. He decided that the little light in the room was still too much for his intentions, so he unscrewed one of the light bulbs from the fake palm tree over them. A manager noticed the bulb being out and told the busboy, 16-year-old Stanley Tomaszewski, to go screw the bulb back in. Stanley grabbed a chair so he could reach the bulb. Since the room was normally so dark, he lit a match so he could see what he was doing. It gave him just enough light. He tightened the bulb and put the match out. Within seconds, the fake palm fronds were ablaze. Next time on The Three Tumblers how 60 years later, a lot of the findings of this report mirror what we just heard. Uh, structure fires actually have a very specific, unique smell to the smoke. 
and it opens and closes behind you once you're in the store. Executive producer is Tyler J. Thomas. Technical producer is Jeff Moss. Writer and editor is Tim Coleman. For source materials, see our website, freetumblers.com. Get this episode and others wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Three Tumblers production. Copyright 2024. All rights reserved.